What an incredible privilege to be with you. I just want to encourage you. I'm in a lot of different contexts, but I'm rarely in a context where the worship is like that. Man, you're blessed, blessed to be able to join together each week and worship the Lord together. I want to say to you, as I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to say this morning how humbled and honored and grateful I am to be here. Dr. Allen, thank you not only for your kind words, but thank you for the invitation to be here uh, this morning as I was in my hotel room asking God's blessing and anointing and favor. I was reminded that 15 years ago, I was in a rural church in deep East Texas, so rural that we had to have a phone cord from the fellowship hall all the way down the hall through the worship center, the sanctuary, to my office in order to have dial-up internet. I was about 25 years old, 24, 25 years of age, and I sat in my office one day and wondered, I wonder if I will ever get to go to a Southern Baptist convention. I wonder if I'll ever get to uh, go see one of our seminaries and if I ever would have the opportunity to meet perhaps a Southern Baptist convention president. Never in a million years when I dreamed that God would allow me to be here in front of you, the next generation of pastors and missionaries and worship leaders and life group teachers and whatever area and arena God's called you to. And I just want you to know, I really am humbled to be here today. And I have not forgotten what it felt like 15 years ago to sit in that church office with dial-up internet and just know how God has allowed me much greater things to be a part of than I could have ever dreamed or imagined. I want to invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 through 5. I want to speak to you this morning on what I've termed the prioritized ministry. The prioritized ministry. You are, without a doubt, at the most exciting time of your life. Man, you're here. You are preparing for God to unleash you into ministry in whatever context he would call you to. For some of you, you're not married, so man, this is your singular focus. For some of you, you're married, you're trying to do life together. Maybe you have kids, and you're trying to figure out what it is that God has for you. And I just want you to recognize today that this is, without a doubt, one of the most incredible times of your life, and I hope that you will seize every single moment for the glory of God. And in this season, in this moment, however, you must be careful and diligent to walk closely with God, to make sure your priorities are in place because here's the deal. This is what I wished someone would have told me when I was beginning. Life gets messy. <laughs> life gets difficult. And as life gets messy, it is easy for the demands of the day to begin to throw chaos into the priorities of your life. And as the demands of the days throw priorities off of what they should be, while it begins to bring chaos into your life, then what you begin to see is that you are so busy doing good things that sometimes you fail to do the God things. That there in your life are so many demands and the chaos of the moment and the, and the, the things that come into life that oftentimes if you're not careful and diligent, your life becomes unprioritized. And when that begins to happen, your effectiveness in life, in relationships, in ministry begin to show weakness and begin to show ineffectiveness. 
You see, it's as if in your life right now, you, you, you are at a place where you can prioritize your life so that when you're going forward, God can use you in ways that you can't even imagine. But I want you to understand this, that if you're not careful, again, you will find yourself time and a time again settling to get the good done when God has something great for you to do. And I want us to see in the life of Paul today, he is writing this letter to the church at Corinth. We know the cultural mess that Corinth is facing. We know the, 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 the sin that the church is, is battling internally. We know all of the conflict. There's two letters to the church in the New Testament. We know all of these things. And in the midst of this, Paul, at the beginning of one of the first letters, he is going to talk about the supremacy of preaching Christ in all things and that your life ought to have the right priorities. And at the top of that priority list is that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to always be at the forefront of your life and your ministry. And the truth is, I believe with all my heart that for some of you, God's going to speak to you in whatever way he needs to today. He's going to meet you where you are, but you're kind of like my wife. My wife and I in March will be celebrating 20 years. And that's a big, big accomplishment if you, if you know me. She's put up with a lot. Well, we were dating in college. We went to East Texas Baptist University. We were dating in college, and I saved up money to, to buy her a ring. I wanted to ask her to be my wife, and so I worked four jobs. I was an RA at the dorm. I was a part-time youth minister. I sold cars, and at night, I picked up dead bodies for the funeral home. Man, I love this woman, let me tell you. And so I finally saved up enough money, and I, I went and I bought a ring, and I began to practice what I was going to say and, and, and wrote it down. And, and man, I, it was going to be a, a, an incredible moment. She's from San Antonio. In downtown San Antonio, there's a restaurant that goes high, and it spins slowly. And I was going to take her to that restaurant on her birthday. I was going to get on a knee and with her city in the background, embarrass her. I was going to ask her to marry me in front of the whole restaurant, and it was going to be epic, and it was going to be awesome. And so spring break comes. We we begin to head to her home. It's about a six-hour drive. We get on a, a, a highway there going through East Texas, and I said, baby, I can't wait until Thursday night. It is your birthday, and I'm telling you, I've got the greatest gift you could ever receive. Now, I know you ladies are thinking about a ring. I was actually talking about me, but... Um, <laughs> and, and, she, and I said, we're going to go out. I've planned a date for your birthday. It's going to be phenomenal. And she looks at me, and she goes, we can't go out Thursday. You ever seen uh, different strokes? What you talking about, Will? It's like, what in the world are you talking about? She said, we can't go out. I committed to be back Wednesday night to babysit for a family on Thursday. I said, no, you don't understand. We have to go out Thursday night. And she said, Nathan, I'm a, a lady of my word. I gave them my word, and I will not go back. Now, I don't know if there's any single ladies in the house. I'm going to give you some lifelong uh, uh, advice here. Men don't have a plan B, <laughs> just so you know, all right? It just doesn't exist. It's just not there. And so I didn't know what to do. I mean, I mean, we're, we're at this point, I'm, I'm in crisis mode, and I'm like, we have to go out, sweetheart. And she says, Nathan, we are not. We are coming back on Wednesday. And so I did what all I knew to do. I said, fine, I'm not giving you your gift. Now, she later told me she thought I was going to buy her a lamp. Like, what lame boyfriend <laughs> gives his girlfriend in college a lamp? And so and so I said, so we argue for the next 10 minutes. I'm like, I, I, I just, I can't believe this. She goes, look, just give it to me now. And I'm like, I am not giving this to you now. She said, no, you've got to give this to me now. It's just a birthday present. It's not a big deal. And I'm going, do you know how many times I practice in front of the mirror for this? No, I'm not giving it to you now. And she kept on and kept on and kept on. Finally, she said, just give it to me now. Ladies, here's a second piece of advice. 
There is a line in a man's mind and heart. Once you push him over the line, it is the point of no return. Can I get an amen, guys? I got tired of it. Finally, I said, fine. So I did all I knew to do. I found the next church I could find. I pulled into the parking lot. It was a shelled parking lot. And I get out of uh, her Mustang, and I go, and I open the trunk. I get the, that, that, that lamp, I mean, that ring out of my suitcase. My heart is pounding. Can I be honest with you? Everything I had written and rehearsed, I forgot in the moment. I walk to the side of her car. I get down on my knees. I open the door. I look at her. I open the ring. And before I can say anything, she goes, Oh, no, don't do this here. <laughs> now, I do need to tell you, I'm still as married as some of you are, and you did some elaborate proposal, but that's how we got engaged. Let me ask, let me say, Nathan, why do you tell that story? Because here's what I want, we're going to walk through this very quickly today, but here's what I want you to know. For some of you, you're on the, you're on the verge of allowing your life to become so chaotic and unprioritized that you're going to find yourself so far from what you want to be in Christ, so far from where you want to be in ministry. And today, God's going to say, hey, I'm, I'm meeting with you here, and I, I've got something powerful for you. But man, there's an enemy that's going to say today, hey, don't do this here. I know you're preparing. I know, I, I know God's equipping you. I know you're being equipped at Midwestern. I know all of those things, but you don't need to worry about what this guy says because uh, I can bring great things in chaos, the enemy would tell you. But remember, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Remember, he is a the father of lies. There is no truth in him. Remember that he is like a lion seeking whom he can devour. And here's the deal. If he can't destroy you, he will distract you. If he can't cause you to take your eyes off of the prize, he will cause you to be so busy that your life becomes unprioritized and your life becomes chaotic. And before long, you look up and say, how did I get to this place? Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's writing about preaching. It is a dysfunctional church. It is a dysfunctional era. It is a, a difficult situation. And in, in, in this passage, Paul, as he is writing about proclaiming Christ and, and keeping Christ on the forefront, I want to kind of mesh today for the sake of time some observations and applications together and give us some lessons that we learn out of the life of Paul. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Listen to this. This is so key. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Three simple things about a prioritized ministry, a prioritized life that we draw out of what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth and, and how we can apply that to our life. The first principle that ought to really challenge us today is this simple. Your giftedness should never be more celebrated than your mission. 
You see, Paul is the apostle. Paul is a church planter. Paul is a discipler. Paul is a teacher. Paul is a preacher. Paul is an evangelist. Paul is a fill-in-the-blank. All of the titles that you and I would seek after, all of the, 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 the position that you and I would, would hunger after, all of those things that in our culture we would say are significant, Paul says none of those are significant. He says, when I come to you and I open the Word of God, I am not coming trying to impress you with my ability, try to impress you with how I structured a, a, a message. I come to you not with lofty speech or wisdom, he says. He says, but I came to you deciding to know nothing but Jesus Christ. You see, here is the truth of the matter today. As I look around, there are so many of you, I don't know you, but I promise you, you are gifted by God to do something great for the kingdom of God. Whether you're a teacher or whether you're, you're going to be a pastor or a missionary or worship leader or whatever it is, the calling God has given you, you are incredibly gifted and you will be so incredibly equipped when you leave this place. But brothers and sisters in Christ, you can never allow your gifting to be more celebrated than your mission. Paul, of all people, could have celebrated his giftedness in preaching. He knew the Bible. He knew the, 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 the law. He, he was eloquent, and he could have been eloquent in speech. Think about how educated he was, how respected he was before his Damascus Road experience. This was not some guy that came off the street corner speaking in East Texas slang. This is a guy who was absolutely educated and can articulate with the best of them. Yet in that moment, he says to this church who is hurting and struggling, I want you to know I'm not here to impress you. I'm not trying to come with plausible words or uh, incredible wisdom. I simply want you to know that the power doesn't lie in my giftedness and my ability to communicate. The power lies in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you're not careful, you will preach, you will teach, and you will serve for pats on the back instead of what we just sang about all glory be to Christ. This is what Paul says. He says, listen, when I came to you, I didn't proclaim with lofty speech or wisdom, and I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here's what Paul says to us practically. I came to you for impact, not to impress you. I came to you with simplicity, not superficial. I came to you and and, and, and wanted the power of God to come and visit us. I didn't come prepackaging something to try to manipulate it. Paul says, listen, I simply came to you not trying to be more than I am, not trying to woo you or win you. I simply came to tell you that Jesus Christ came and he died for you and he loves you. My message is Christ. Life would scream to us that we cannot let our giftedness be more celebrated than our mission. Students, I don't know what year you're in here, but here's what I can tell you. When you leave this place, often the times, the, th the things that people celebrate about you will somehow become your identity and you have to prioritize your life to where it's Christ and Christ alone. Christ and Christ only. You see, friends, you're gifted, but you cannot let your gift outpace or outlive your godliness. Paul says, man, I, I didn't come to impress. He could have. I simply came to preach Jesus. I simply came to tell you that he brings life. 
So I have four kids. My oldest son is 17. He's a junior. We uh, moved back to Texas. He's a football player, and, and he's a, uh, I don't know if there's any football players in here, but he's a kicker. Now, I have to be honest with you because I have to repent from the Lord, before the Lord from time to time. I was a middle linebacker. We made fun of kickers. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I knew nothing about kicking. And so when, he's, when we realized he could kick two years ago, it was like, okay, God, what am I supposed to do with this? And God began to deal with me for my pride and say, Nathan, he's, uh, he's, he's got something special. So we began to get him coaching. We began to find out he's like really, really special. Like he's in the top 10 in the nation in his grade. And so we, 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 we do all that we can because he's got this really good gift. Two weeks ago, Friday night, we moved to this school, guys, that have $35 million worth of facilities, man. They have the longest Texas uh, winning streak in high school history in Texas. And, and so there's thousands and thousands of people that show up to the games. It's, it's crazy, man. It's really crazy. And, it's, and so he shows up in Salina, Texas, and we go and we're, we're, we're facing one of their rivals, and it is his first game. And he has been working for two years to start varsity, and he's getting a lot of attention uh, for a kicker and all of these kind of things. And so he was ready. He's been working for two years and he lines up for the first kickoff. As a dad, man, I didn't eat all day. My stomach is in, my heart is in my stomach. I am nervous as I can be. And, and, and he, we, we, we win the toss. We defer, which means we kick off. So the first play of the season for Salina Bobcats is my son kicking off. And man, the crowd is going crazy and we're holding our thumbs up yelling, go, go. And I'm videoing and my video kind of looks like this because I'm just nervous as I can be. And I'm like, this is the moment he has been waiting for. And there goes the whistle. He takes off and he runs towards the ball and he gets right up to the ball. And as he plants his foot to kick the ball, his foot slips right out from underneath him. He kicks it 10 yards and falls flat on his face. Now, I got to be honest with you. The next day, it was really funny. <laughs> it was really funny. I've got pictures that I'm going to frame and give him for Christmas. But here's what I want you to understand. This kid is gifted. This kid is touted. This kid will probably be playing on Saturdays in a D1 school. Like This kid has everything he needs to succeed. But in that moment, he did not walk out on the field before and test it. He did not run through kickoffs. Therefore, he didn't pay attention to the, the surface in which his foot would plant on. So though he is extremely gifted, he was not aware of what was going on in the culture, in the atmosphere. And therefore, when it was game time, as much as he was gifted, as much as he was prepared, he slipped. See, students, here's the deal. You're so gifted. But if you're not aware of the atmosphere in which you're serving and the enemy, how he's trying to attack you, if Jesus is not first, as Paul says, if you're trying to go in and say, I'm going to impress, I'm going to, to try to win them over with my personality, listen to me, you're, you're, you're on your way to slipping when it counts. Listen to what Paul says. I came, brothers. Not proclaiming to, you to, proclaiming to you testimony of God, but lofty speech or wisdom. Yet I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. The second principle we see is this, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So really the first principle we see out of Paul's life here is, is your giftedness should never be more celebrated than your mission. But secondly, your ministry should never be motivated by men, but instead dependent on the Holy Spirit. 
So Paul lays out, look, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not coming with plausible words. You're not going to walk away and say, man, that was an incredible speaker. That was a, a great sermon outline. That was, that was YouTube worthy. Paul says, no, man, I, I, that's not who I am. I want you to know Jesus because he is the priority of my life and he's got to be the priority of your life. But he goes on to say, but not only do I just want you to know Christ and I'm not here to impress you, I want you to know that I was with you in weakness and in trembling. I was fearful among you. I think what Paul is saying is, I walked humbly before you. I have not forgotten my Damascus Road experience. I have not forgotten where I came from. I've not forgotten that, but, but by the grace of God, there go I. I think Paul is saying, I could have brought in all kind of things that made your head spin and, and, and impressed you. And you could have walked away saying, that was a great message. That was a great speaker, Paul. Paul says, no, I want you to focus on Jesus. And listen to what he says. My weakness and my fear and trembling, my speech were not in plausible words of wisdom. I love this, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You see, the second principle that I believe we can take out of Paul's life is simply this that your ministry should not be motivated by men, it needs to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. Can I just be honest with you this morning? This is coming to you out of the overflow of my heart. I'm, I'm asking God for some things. I was with a group of people last week in Nashville as we gathered and talked about how do we create a national prayer movement. I'm telling you, if we don't begin being a praying people, we're not going to experience the fullness of what God wants to do. And as we heard stories of what God was doing, pockets of movements of God always preceded by prayer, God began to just well up in me that, Nathan, it's not about confidence and, and, and arrogance and, and, and giftedness. It's about walking in front of me humbly and expecting and, and anticipating and chasing after the what he says, the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. See, friends, we have plenty of students. We have plenty of young men and women who are equipped, educated. Those things are great talented, resourced, and creative, but what we need is a generation that is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You know, it'd be a tragedy. You come to a place like this, which is phenomenal. I mean, I was just so blown away what God's doing here. But it would be a tragedy if you came here and you left here knowing Greek and Hebrew, but you don't know how to passionately pray. It would be a tragedy if you came in here and, 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 and studied and you left knowing all about hermeneutics, but you don't regularly discipline yourself to hear from God from his word. It would be a tragedy if you knew how to do expository uh, and exegetical preaching, but you do not actively share the gospel. It would certainly be a tragedy if you came here and got all the incredible information and education, but you left here without really having transformation from the spirit of God working in your life. This is what Paul says. Look, the way I came to you was about the mission of Jesus being known. And he said, the way I came to you, humbly, fearfully, trembling, not thinking highly of myself, because I wanted the Spirit of God to demonstrate his power, and therefore he's going to say in the last verse, so that when the Spirit shows up and, 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 and his power is known, you can't look at me and say, man, it was because of him. You have to look at the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And as I study, guys, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is our ecosystem, and I live in the, 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 the constant life cycle of it, I have to pay attention to all of it. <laughs> 
As I study it, let me just challenge you with this. I do not believe the greatest tragedy that faces us is declining baptisms on ACP. I don't believe it's declining worship attendance. I don't believe it's uh, that they say that the SBC is declining or, or, or whatnot. I, I don't believe it's that more churches are closing than, 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 than are, are starting or planting. Here's what I believe. I believe the greatest tragedy is that there could be a generation of Southern Baptists who spend their entire ministry and never experience a move of God. As I was with this group of men, we began talking about all the points that God moved among Southern Baptists in incredible ways and incredible ways. And obviously, uh, there were times in which God just poured out his spirit on us as a network of churches and a family of churches. And, and we would talk about these pockets, but something happened. We, we kind of hit the year 2000, and no one could recollect a move of God among Southern Baptists that was large and felt and expansive after the year 2000. I'm not a historian, so I don't know. This is just a group of men who are seeking the face of God together, saying, oh, God, would you please move among Southern Baptists? Would you please put desperate prayer in our lives? And as we begin to talk about all these movements of God, all these times in which, in which uh, people looked at Southern Baptists and said, God is moving, and yet at the year 2000 and beyond, there's not one uh, that we could come up with. There was not one verifiable movement of God that we could say that God was pouring out his spirit on Southern Baptists. And it dawned on me, friends, it dawned on me, I'm 40 years old. I'm halfway through my ministry. And it dawned on me that I graduated in 99 from high school. I entered into ministry in the year 2000. And it dawned on me that I've served half, if that is true, I've served half of my ministry without collectively as a denomination and as a family of churches experiencing a fresh new movement of the Holy Spirit of God. The greatest tragedy is that we could possibly as a generation live our entire life without seeing a movement of the Holy Spirit that is, is, is absolutely 100% only attributed to the power of God. See, we have great preachers, great pastors, great ministers. But what I'm begging God for, if I can just be honest, is that your generation and my generation would experience what Paul's desire was, that there would be a demonstration of the spirit and of power. I beg of you to join me in begging God to pour out his spirit once again upon Southern Baptist churches in our communities, in our cities. Your giftedness should never become more celebrated than your mission. Your ministry should never be more motivated by men. Instead, dependent on the Holy Spirit, Paul says, I, it's not me. I, I'm trembling. I'm fearful. But the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, I love this last verse, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here's what Paul's saying. I didn't impress you. I just gave you the truth. I gave you the truth in such a way that I am weak, I am humble, I am fearful, so that if God were to use this that I were to give you, it must be attributed to his power, his glory, him, not me. It is so easy, friends. I'm just telling you, it is so easy to, 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 to seek after performance in ministry instead of power in ministry. 
It's, it's so easy to, 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 to say, man, thank you, you know, to, to love those, those pats on the back and those titles and those accomplishments and all of those things. But at the end of the day, friends, at the end of the day, we are wretched sinners saved by the grace of God. That is as good as we'll ever be, but that is as good as we ever need to be because the grace of God has changed us and we get to worship him and we get to say how great thou art and we get to point others to him. It is not about you. It is not about me. Paul says it's not about him. It's about the Spirit of God pouring Himself out so that when He does, the only person that can receive the glory is Him. Your faith should never be placed in men, but rather the power of God. I've got to be honest with you, the more that I've learned about how to do ministry, the less I've leaned into the Spirit of God. Heed that warning, friends. If we're going to see a movement of God together, we must get on our face and beg God. We must, as Paul says, we must make it about Jesus. We must be passionate prayers. We must come and be humble before God and say, God, we are weak and we are feeble, but if you'll just simply take my life and use it for your glory, if you'll take my life and use it for the spirit of God and, 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 and demonstrate your power in and through me, then God, I want others when they see it, I don't want them to point to me and high five me. I want them to say, what's in you? And I can say, it is God who works in me. It is Christ who can meet you where you are. It is the Spirit who wants to empower you to do great things for the kingdom. You see, here's the deal. When man empties himself, becomes weak and trembling, and the Spirit of God steps in, God does things that are unimaginable. I'll close with this. When I was pastoring my first church, out in the country church I was telling you about, my, my wife and I, we had one son we uh, wanted to have more kids, and so we had two miscarriages, and then we got pregnant again. The church had 33 people when they, when they voted on me, and I, I honestly, I thought I was Billy Graham and it was the Taj Mahal, man. I didn't need it. I was a mega church. We got pregnant again, and the day came in which we were able to go find out what this child was. So we go to the doctor's office for the ultrasound, and 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 and. And we get there, and the, the, the nurse begins to do the ultrasound on my wife, and she's looking around, and all of a sudden she stops, and she says, would you excuse me for a moment? Tears begin to come out of my wife's eyes. I grabbed her hand. I said, honey, I don't know what's going on, but, man, we're going to trust God in this. A few minutes later, the doctor walked back in. He continued the ultrasound, and he looked at us and said the words we'd never wanted to hear. He said, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but... Somewhere in the last couple of days, your baby boy's heart has stopped beating. And he looks at my wife and he says, you're going to have to come in tomorrow and you're going to have to deliver a stillborn little boy. Man, we were devastated. We were 24, 25, young, scared. We go to the car. We call our parents. We're crying. We don't know what to do. They rush over. The next morning, I'm going to take my wife to the hospital to deliver a baby boy she'd never bring out in her arms. My wife that day courageously gave birth to a little boy that we named Connor. My job when the delivery was over was to go out to the family and tell them it was done so they could come in and 
began loving on and ministering to my wife and myself. But yet when I walked out of the door of the hospital, I was to walk straight and there was a little hallway off to the right, that dead end. And I, I walked down that hallway and, and in the middle of that hallway, I just dropped to my knees and I, I raised my hands up. I, I was fearful. I was angry. I was frustrated. I was confused. And I raised my hands up in the middle of that hallway of East Texas Medical Center and I said, God, what are you doing? God, I'm serving you. I'm in ministry. I'm a pastor. God, why would you do this to us? I'll never forget. I tell people this. I'm not one that says God speaks to me all the time. He does through his word, but not in this kind of way. But there on my knees in that hospital room, the Holy Spirit comforted my heart. And God put something in my heart that day. And he said this, Nathan, I'm not doing it to you. I'm doing it through you for someone else down the road. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I thought to myself, God, you are the creator of vocabulary, and that's all you got? <laughs> I don't like that answer. But I told my wife we would trust him. So I got off my knees. I went and got my family. We went home the next day, began the process of healing. There was a funeral home about 15 minutes away from us that called me and said, hey, pastor, you, we hear you've had a stillborn son. We want to do the funeral for you for free if you don't mind. And by the way, pastor, it's up to you. But we have a cemetery, the brand new cemetery, about 30 minutes away in East Texas that we're happy to give you a plot if you want to bury your son there. It won't cost you anything. We were so grateful. So we buried our son at that cemetery. A few months went by. On a Sunday afternoon, I got a knock on the door. It was my student pastor. I lived next door to church and in a parsonage. And he said, hey, Nathan, you need to come over here. There's a couple that wants to meet with you. And I said, man, it's Sunday afternoon. That's only good for football and naps, man. I mean, can't we meet Monday? He said, you need to come now. So I walked next door. I sat down and I was a little frustrated. I sat down with the, this young man and this young lady. And here's what they said. We just moved here. Now, you didn't just happen to move to Martins Mill, Texas. The day, first day I went out there to interview with the committee, I drove around the S-curve, and there was a kid walking a goat on a leash while his dog ran loose, and I thought, Lord, what are you calling me to? Now, you don't just move there, and they said, we just moved here. We were driving by today, and something told us that we just need to stop and talk to the guy who leads this place. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not mystical. I'm not any of that. I do believe God works in ways we don't understand. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. And tears came down this young lady's eyes, and here's what she said. A week or two ago, we had a stillborn little girl. My mind began to flood back to that hallway. I ran, and I got my wife. We came over, and we began talking to them as they weeped. Uh, they wept and wept, and, and we're, we were all weeping together. And, 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 man, the incredible thing is right there in our office, through the pain of our son and the pain of their daughter, that young man and that young lady surrendered their life to Christ in my office. Now, that's a really cool story if it ends there. As we began talking, we began realizing that our little boy and their little girl were buried in the same cemetery some 30 minutes away. Man, pretty cool story if it ends there. As we begin drilling down and talking, where, where at? When you pull in, you go here, you go there, you go here, you go there. To the best of our ability, we begin to realize that our little baby boy and their little baby girl were not only born in the same cemetery, but were born in, uh, buried in plots 
next to each other. You tell me how a God doesn't orchestrate that. You tell me how God in our weakness and our fear and our trembling, just saying, God, we don't understand it, but God, we're going to trust you. When we begin to remove ourselves from the equation, you tell me that God doesn't step in. He demonstrates his power and his spirit in, in, even in the midst of our crisis. And he orchestrates this unbelievable chain of events where people through my son's death now have eternal life. And yet here we are 30 minutes away from the cemetery. Our kids are buried next to each other, the best we can tell in this cemetery. And listen, if that's a cool, uh, if that's a story into there, that'd be a cool story. I moved to Denver, Colorado four years ago. About two years ago, a church in Naples, Florida was without a pastor. They asked me to come speak. I got on a plane from Denver. I flew to Naples, Florida. I, I, I spoke and I shared this story about how Christ can use your, your pain. He doesn't waste your pain, but he's always working in ways we can't see it. And there was a guy in the choir loft that texted a friend of his who worked, he worked with and said, hey man, I know what you're walking through. You need to watch this message today. God's going to use it in your life. The next week, I get a phone, uh, a text from my wife saying, there's this guy on Facebook saying he's got to talk to you. I gave him your number. He's calling you. In five minutes, this guy calls me. He says, Nathan, you don't know me, but you've, I've got to talk to you. He said, listen, my wife and I just had a stillborn little child. And I had a friend that was in Naples, Florida at church where you spoke about how God uses your crisis for his glory. And, and he told us we had to watch it. And my wife and I, we sat in bed in the midst of our pain and we just wept before the Lord saying, oh God, if you can use them, use us, use our pain. He said, Nathan, and then the crazy thing is, is I, I, I began to Google and found out that you live in Denver. Now, where in Denver do you live? I said, I live in Westminster. He said, you're not, you're not joking. I said, I'm not. He said, I live in North Glen. That's five miles away. He said, can we meet for lunch? We met the next week. We start talking. And he goes, hey, man, tell me about your other kids. I tell him about our kids. He tells me about his kids. He said, hey, where do your kids go to school? I said, well, my wife teaches at a private Christian school 20 minutes away in Arvada, Colorado. He goes, no way. Is it faith? I said, yes. He said, you're not going to believe this. My kids go to faith. He said, what, what grade are your kids in? So I start telling him, and I tell him my son at the time was in eighth grade, and he goes, oh, did you just speak at eighth grade graduation three weeks ago? I said, yeah, why? He said, my daughter is in the same grade as your son. Hey, maybe that doesn't amaze you, <laughs> but let's retrace that. I'm in the middle of nowhere, America. God takes us, empties us of ourselves. He brings a couple to come to know him. He is working in our pain, in our midst, as we empty ourselves, as we prioritize his will over ours. He's working in supernatural ways. God moves me to Denver. God sends me to Florida to speak a message that connects with a guy back in Denver. We sit down in Denver and figure out that his daughter and my son are not only in the same private Christian school, they are in the same grade at the same private Christian school. Maybe I should put it this way to you. 7 billion people on earth. And God in his kindness, in his providence, in his sovereignty, he is working through these things as we empty ourselves. He's demonstrating his spirit and his power so that when, when we begin to realize that his daughter and my son are in the same grade and God orchestrated us ministering to them through our pain because God showed up. Listen to me, friends. I want you to understand this. When you look at this, 
You can't say to anyone, man, that was a great plan you planned. No, you have to look and say, we serve a God that blows our mind for his glory. We serve a God that when our life is prioritized, when it is about Jesus, when, when we walk in humility, when it is about seeing the spirit of God show up and pour out himself upon us and the power of God working in us in all circumstance, when we back away, prioritize Jesus first, and we desperately seek a move of God and God moves, then we get to say, friends, that's a God story. And I just happen to believe he's not through with it yet. So let me ask you this. How prioritized is your life? Don't leave this place to make a name for yourself. You will slip when it counts. You leave this place hungry for a move of God. Don't let the metrics of your ministry be title or position or size or et cetera. Let the metrics of your ministry be how has God moved in my life and in the ministry he's entrusted to me. And watch what God does because here's the crazy thing. You're in Kansas City. Somehow God's using your life somewhere else in ways you can't imagine so that at the end of the day, he gets glory. Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would move in these students' hearts. God, I pray with everything within me that you would remind them that they must bow before you, prioritize their walk with you. God, let them understand today that it is not about how gifted we are, how impressive we can be. It is how broken and humble you found us in. And you saved us by your grace for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.